from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. Welcome to another edition of the National Press Club Update One podcast. I'm your host, Lincoln Smith, and with this conversation, we are joined by Dr. Jonathan Ward, who has just released his latest book, The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China. Dr. Ward has advised the U.S. Department of Defense, along with leading American companies in the technology manufacturing, and finance sectors. He has written a book called China's Vision for Victory, has a PhD from Oxford, and is a frequent media commentator. Jonathan has lived in China, India, Russia, Latin America, and the Middle East. And through his company, Atlas Organization, he assists Fortune 500 companies in the understanding of the U.S.-China global competition. Welcome, Dr. Jonathan Ward. Thank you, Link. Good to be with you. Right. Let's get right into it. What inspired you to write The Decisive Decade? So The Decisive Decade follows on China's vision of victory, which was the first book to explain the global grand strategy of the Chinese government in their own documents and in their own words. Now, I'd been steeped in all of that sort of information as a PhD student and then later working um, as an advisor to the DOD and wanted with the first book to lay out the CCP's strategy, explain that it was fully global, that it was far deeper than Xi Jinping. Um, This goes all the way back to the founding of the People's Republic of China, and that we're in this contest where they envision ultimately becoming the victor and, uh, as they see it, returning to preeminence in world affairs. So after years of grappling with that, the other side of the question is what do we do about this? What can America do? So in the decisive decade, I've proposed a U.S. grand strategy, a path forward for us to win this competition and to actually think about winning it. I mean, what does it mean to uh, prevail in this contest that I think many of us or most of us at this point understand we are in. I mean, this is going to be the most important geopolitical uh, competition of our lifetimes, and we need to have um, a vision of victory of our own. So the decisive decade lays that out. What would it look like to win? And to that, let's go to the introduction to the decisive decade. Indeed, it says, quote, the current decade, the 2020s, is the decisive decade in the United States-China competition, end quote. Can you characterize the competition to which you refer? Absolutely. And, um, you know, the phrase is, you know, I began talking about that in China's vision of victory because the PRC has timeframes that go out to 2049 and they have a very clear idea of, you know, what this looks like over a very long-term period. And to me, for the United States, this is not about all the way out to 2049, let's say. It's going to be won or lost in the 2020s. I mean, we're going to have to have a vision of what success looks like by 2030. And, um, you know, I started using this Um, phrase in 2019 and 2020 itself. And then it's interesting that it's sort of taken on wider use now. Um, But we also have to deal with an economic ascendancy um, with many of the CCP's plans coming to fruition. Um, And I think this is the last opportunity for the U.S. and our allies to wake up and uh, lay in the foundations for for, very 
deeper long-term strategy that would go out for multiple decades. Um, and for all of those reasons, I mean, it's it's really the 2020s where we have to get um, to the point where we're playing to win. So the competition that we're in is fundamentally a competition for global power. It's economic, military, diplomatic, um, ideological even. It's all of the above. I mean, the CCP has a total vision of how they're going to um, manage world affairs, how they're going to complete their ascendancy. And they have that worked out in, in pretty much every arena that matters and every aspect of um, you know, international power from seabed to space, from Africa to the Antarctic. I mean, their vision is very comprehensive. So um, we have to get in, into the game and preserve the American-led world. And I remember when I was studying the Chinese Civil War at Oxford, there were um, many, many um, you know, historiographies that, that essentially said the communists were going to win. It was all decided at the beginning. But there was one that stood out, and I wrote about this in the first book, called Decisive Encounters by Odd Arne Weston, where he said, in fact, it was the nationalists, the other side, that had all of the advantages, and they just essentially were – they failed to engage in the right ways. And that was my concern for America is that, you know, we're the, we are the superior economic power, uh, the superior military power. Um, we have the power of our ideas, our values. I mean all of this is – has um, you know led to an American-led world that's uh, and, and the Pax Americana of the past 75 years, and for us to simply ignore this and to therefore fail would be a tragedy of enormous consequences and proportions. So um, we have to, you know, begin to get busy on this issue now. To your point about economic ascendancy, let's get over to corporate America. Is corporate America sacrificing the freedom of the United States and the free world? by continuing to do business with China, or perhaps not. And this is a very essential theme. I mean, in the book, um, General H.R. McMaster, the former U.S. National Security Advisor, wrote the foreword and addressed it to the business leaders of the free world. Basically, we need you in the game. And this is one of the key p pieces of this book, because the way that I see it, there are a few things we have to do. We have to win a global economic competition, which means to um, retain American economic superiority. I think that's the most important element of long-term power in history. Um, we have had that power for, at this point, well over 100 years, um, you know, into the, the end of the 1800s even. We've been the superior economic power in the world, and eventually that led to, to a much broader diplomatic and military reach. Uh, we can't let go of that. And in order to win an economic contest, we need our private sector on board. And I think that's the biggest tension right now in the lack of uh, a genuine American grand strategy is that I think Washington is waking up to this issue. I think even the American public is waking up to this issue. But I think the, um, you know, our business leaders across all the major industries, you know, whether it's finance, manufacturing, technology, you know, all sorts of things, I mean, they are going to have to get in this game. We need our private sector to win. And in the meantime, and I've laid this out in a lot of detail because I've been studying the the corporate engagement issues with China for, for quite some time now. Um, you know, many of our businesses have gotten deep into the China market. I mean, the intellectual property theft, the supply chain, um, you know, issues, the, the fact that they, you know, you have companies that are uh, tied by accident or, or, you know, you just neglect into uh, human rights abuses, into civil military fusion, into all these issues because China's economy at the end of the day is built to service its strategic power and their companies are already part of their grand strategy. So ours through economic engagement are becoming 
um, entangled in that issue, and we need to pull them back. We need to pull them back to our side. Um, and, and what that means is, yes, there are going to be areas where we need them to, to stop. And then there are going to be other areas where potentially it's stabilizing to the overall relationship. But I think by and large, um, one of the major pieces is for corporate strategies to align with the U.S. national interest. And that's true, I think, across the alliance system. It can't just be America alone. We need to get our alliance system, which is still um, the the majority of the world economy um, into the game of global competition with China. And we should not be seduced by uh, the China market, which in many cases is not nearly um, as valuable as we might think. To your point of waking up, does American leadership have a clear vision of the Chinese perspective of world geography or perhaps not? Well, this was something I laid out in China's vision of victory and expanded upon in the decisive decade. I mean, uh, China's uh, view of geography is, is not simply about the Indo-Pacific. It's not simply about the island chains. It's a very global view. And I think we can see the clearest expression of that through the Belt and Road, which of course is an economic strategy to tie the continents of the world um, back to China with China as the economic center. And um, and that's a that's you know really the bulk of the world's landmass is, is considered to be part of the Belt and Road at this point. I mean, you, if you look at the entire Eurasian, African, Indian Ocean uh, supercontinental structure, um, you know, it goes beyond, I think, the the Eurasian question that that you know many strategists have grappled with in the past, and into the emerging world, the emerging continents. You know, even Latin America is considered to be part of the Belt and Road. Even the Arctic, as they see it. So, in in short, it's a vision of all of their global trading interests, economic interests, and then um, you know their military strategies are not confined to Taiwan, the South China Sea, or the island chains alone. I mean, they see the South China Sea, you know, in their own writings, as the gateway to the Indian Ocean, to the South Pacific, um, even to the Northern Sea. So this is all about uh, for them in the long term. And this goes beyond the 2020s. This is the world that I think we get dangerously into if we fail to act in the 2030s and 40s into the real heart of China's vision of victory. For them to dominate the global economy, the global trading system, the global supply chain system, um, and, and global markets, particularly in the emerging world, um, would create a de facto economic empire. And then they would simply, as they're already discussing and building towards, um, roll out the military power to defend these interests. So we're dealing with a very different strategy um, than we might imagine. This is not simply about Taiwan. It's not simply about the island chains. It's not simply about the Indo-Pacific. I mean, China has a global vision. And fortunately, you know, we have global experience. That is not necessarily something that they have got. And we need to leverage this. I mean, America needs a global strategy as well. I mean, this is not going to be Fortress America. As I talk about in the decisive decade, Fortress America um, puts us in, in a very dangerous position. It's a terrible idea if it's even held by those that believe in accommodation or isolationism. I mean, you cannot simply um, disengage. America has to, um, you know, especially through the alliance system, pursue um, the, the, the defense of its global power. And, and let's just say it, uh, uh, through global experience, Belt and Road Initiative of China is certainly not what George C. Marshall had with the Marshall Plan, much different. Well, it's, it's much broader in its vision, and I think it inter... Um, it, it utilizes the Chinese economy in ways that, that are very different from the Marshall Plan. I mean, a lot of it, in a way, tracks the corporate and trading interests of Chinese enterprises. I mean, a lot of that, you know, I used to travel pretty widely in, in many of the countries that um, that are considered part of the Belt and Road. And, you know, to use Indian Ocean examples back when I was um, going around Indian Ocean Island states and seeing the major Chinese um, 
you know, construction giants and state banks. I mean, these are the ones that are building up the strategic infrastructure, and of course, which leads to uh, to diplomatic influence and ultimately military, um, you know, potential. So, so that's how they're doing it. And 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 the problem with with um, the way that we deal with with economics is with a private sector. I mean, we're making, um, you know, return on investment and you know shareholder based um, investment decisions worldwide, where they're making strategic investment decisions that are much more, in a sense, like the British Empire than than a um, you know private sector based on shareholder capitalism. So so we're gonna. I think the way that we do things is going to have to. Um, you know, change slightly in order to, to simply get into this game. Let's get over the people of China for a moment here. Uh, indeed, recent reports spotlight Chinese students abroad taking on their government. And to that and to the people of mainland China, do you believe that there might be a silent majority? They privately do not support their government. Rather, they support the free world. Well, look, I think this is a very important question. I mean, the, the nature of uh, the party state and the people in China, I think on one hand, there is a very powerful and dangerous um, nationalism that has been built up um, and, you know, really fostered by the Communist Party since its, um, you know, since the founding of the of the PRC in 1949. And I think it accelerated much more so after Tiananmen Square in 1989, where they came out with the patriotic education program and, you know, taught um, many people, especially of my generation, about um, enemies abroad and that sort of thing to Japan, the United States. I mean, this was the party's way of of um, you know shaping the narrative, so we're dealing with that as a very dangerous uh, factor. And then on the other hand, I mean, I think you know just now, I mean, here in Washington, we've seen very recent news about um, a student organization that wants to be independent of the Chinese Communist Party and wants to be able to have a voice and engage, even it appears, in counter-regime protests and those sorts of things. So I think what really matters here, um, one, it's a question we will always have to care about and always have to uh, do our best to understand. I mean, how um, popular, you know, what kind of support does the party actually have? That is something that I think is, is one of the most vital questions in this contest when it comes to the nature of the China that we're dealing with. And on the other hand, I think in the United States, in the free world. Um, as I've said in the book, it is incredibly important that you know our country has become a refuge for those who wish to um, push back against this regime and to make sure that the party isn't able to follow its own um, citizens or certainly those who've, who've gone into uh, who fled the state. Um, we have to make sure that the party is not able to follow them, to intimidate them, to coerce them in the free world. So when you cross into the borders of the U.S., I mean, you indeed, I think we um, need to be sure that people are free and that people are not subject to the coercion of the party. And in the meantime, so much of their global uh, influence and coercion game is about suppressing and intimidating um, their own nationals and dissidents abroad. And we've seen that through the police stations and through you know, other initiatives they've taken. So, um, so I think we have to be vigilant that the party cannot um, exert that sort of influence um, at home here. The doctrine of containment during the Cold War managed and defeated the Soviet Union. Now, to today, given the current U.S. and China economic integration, not present in the Cold War, uh, is a complete economic decoupling between the United States and China, hence necessary for similar management and defeat of modern-day China? 
Well, so this is a big, big chunk of the new book. I mean, I break it into multiple arenas with the economic arena being the most important. And I think we have to pursue a two-track strategy. I mean, on one hand, you have to rebuild the United States and our industrial base. You have to seize the opportunities that are going to be presented by the next chapter that we're you know, going through already in economic history, where um, the fourth industrial revolution is going to lead to massive, um, you know, productivity increases and the creation of new industries and technologies, and that's all ours to, um, you know, to utilize in an economic contest. But at the same time, I think the economic integration largely harms us. I mean, these. Um, you know, the nature of this relationship is one that I think skews uh, massively in, in China's favor. I mean, certainly you can see that expressed in the uh, trading relationship itself, where our exports are, you know, pretty flat around 150 billion and theirs keep rising. And, um, you know, I think that if we're I mean, most importantly, we have uh, through the 30 years or so of economic engagement, we have um, essentially, you know, we created the rise of China. I mean, China was essentially an agrarian state at the end of the uh, 20th century, and through economic engagement with the United States, it became a it became a technological, uh, industrial, and you know, soon to be military superpower. So um, that was done through economic engagement, through intellectual property theft, through uh, forced technology transfer, through, cap through capital investment, and through access to our markets and the markets of our allies. So all we have to do is deny them those things to, you know, really three denials, market denial, technology denial, and capital denial. And their ascendancy uh, is over. Um, you know, they required access to the free world in order to rise. And they continue to require access to the free world in order to complete their rise and their long-term strategies. So if we're able to, to cut that off or scale it back, um, you know, not necessarily in whole, but certainly in part, um, that is going to change the nature of this contest and turn it into a contest that we can win uh, by hitting this potential for bifurcation with the Chinese economy and then acceleration through uh, Industry 4.0 and, and the fact that we actually have a vast alliance system in many, many emerging markets. I mean, you know, still 85% of the global economy is ex-China and ex-CCP. So, so that's a pretty wide, broad world for us to participate in, and at, at the very least, you know, securing our own uh, critical supply chains and, you know, advancing in our strategic industries um, is a necessary form of, of separation with Beijing. I mean, we do not need them to make the same gains that we are if we can avoid it. And, and you know, economic entanglement is leading to that. The book states that the United States and the free world must be victorious over China in four areas, and we've talked about economic. How about the diplomatic, military, and something you call that of ideas? What needs to be done in each of those areas for the United States and the allies to succeed over China? Right. So the four arenas, economic, uh, diplomacy, military, and the arena of ideas, I mean, these are how I split out the book. I mean, it's basically the arenas of classical U.S. and Western grand strategy. I mean, we're going to need to have uh, objectives and a strategy in each of these. So I've laid those out in the decisive decade. Um, but the bottom line is, if, if we're able to uh, win in the economic game and play to win in the economic arena, and I've laid out how to do that, all of those advantages and goods flow into the other arenas that will otherwise, I believe, be lost. I mean, we would see a loss of diplomatic power. We see, are already seeing a transformation of the military balance against us, and we're seeing an ascendancy of Beijing's um, ideological um, agenda in, in, in ways that should be completely unthinkable given the power of the American idea. Um, but what we need to do is uh, 
um, if we can win an economic game, I mean, we rebuild our diplomatic power, you know, two tracks, uh, most importantly, I mean, one, the alliance system itself, which is, um, you know, 50 to 60 percent of uh, global GDP and, and the majority of the world's wealth. I mean, that is, I think, the basis for the American-led world. I mean, the alliance system and then the emerging world, getting the emerging world nations, um, sort of anchor nation by anchor nation in critical regions from Africa to Latin America to, of course, the Indo-Pacific and beyond, um, getting those to swing to our side because of our superior economic and military um, pull. And then on the military side, I mean, this is really about um, victory through peace, through strength. I mean, that's what we want to go back to. I mean, to me, this book was written in part um, as, as an alternative, as a way to uh, neither uh, find our way towards China's vision of victory, but also to, to, to prevent... Um, you know, a, a real uh, military conflict in the Pacific. I mean, we do not, in my opinion, want a major power war. Uh, to preserve the American peace is the objective of this book, and that means military superiority. But you cannot have military superiority without economic superiority for the long haul. I mean, we may have it for a little bit longer, but in the long run, um, the two are directly linked, and that's why they're essential. But I've laid out, you know, a bunch of approaches to the military side, drawing on some of the best expertise that we've got. Um, and, and if we are able to flow and pull these things together, um, really the triumph here is the triumph of our ideals, um, you know, our system, the fact that the world, in my view, and I think of many people around the world, not only in America, um, ideally is based on human rights, uh, humane values, and uh, free democracies. And that's the system we want to, to preserve. That system has been tested and contested uh, for as long as it has existed. Um, but, you know, our ideas, you know, our values are, you know, I think the, that's what's at stake here. And in, in that, that's why this is, that's why this contest matters. Let's get over to the media. Given the ongoing reportage of China by the independent media in the free world, do you think that Beijing's overall confrontation of the free world writ large can ultimately prevail or not? I don't think they will win this contest. I think we can stop China's vision of victory, but I think they do have a vision um, of how to win, and they're they're working on it, and I think succeeding in many uh, different regards. But we have to act. I mean, that's where we need, um, above all, an awakening, you know, not only in Washington, but across this country and across this private sector. And in order to to understand this, I think the media does play such an important role. And, you know, in my opinion, is that U.S., um, reportage on China has has been largely excellent as a subject matter expert, as a trained PhD and historian of modern China. I've been, um, you know, very, uh, you know, pleased with the fact that the press. Uh, I mean, there's just been excellent coverage from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to all sorts of. Um, emerging experts and voices. But I think what we need at this point is to understand the nature of the contest we're in and to start to, you know, gather an American narrative. And we had this in the Cold War. We certainly, um, you know, over time it was bipartisan and and even the, the counter strategy was bipartisan. I mean, containment, which began at the beginning, was able to be passed successively from administration to administration. Of course, I didn't live through the early Cold War myself, but um, you know, one can look back and, and see at least the continuity over the decades in American strategic thinking and in American, you know, awareness of the USSR. And I think we have to reach that point on China where we've made up our minds about what this means and we're focused more on how to um, how to win the geopolitical competition, how to win the subdivisions of it in the different arenas and, and not 
simply debating the nature of whether or not we have a problem. Um, and I think the press has been, um, you know, done a lot of leadership already. I mean, the human rights reporting has been fantastic. I mean, the coverage of the genocide in Xinjiang makes it absolutely undeniable. And that's the work of, you know, great researchers and journalists and you know, and I think at this point, the real open question is how much more access are we going to have uh, to the PRC as they begin to close down and, um, you know, intimidate different organizations and, of course, uh, you know, throw reporters out. And at this point, you know, at time of recording, we're seeing them crack down on, on um, information gathering services and things like Bain Consulting Group and, and others um, in, in those areas. Uh, they, they've now... Uh, basically put them under the aegis of counter-espionage. And um, I think we're going to start to see information dry up. And as a primary source historian, I recognize that we were in this golden age of openness when you know I had access to the Beijing archives uh, for my PhD um, and was able to look at the first 20 years of uh, communist China's diplomatic history um, as a fairly open book. And that all shut down while I was there and it has never been opened again. So to me, the the longer we're able to see the writing on the wall, the longer we're able to access this country, you know, we need to learn everything we can and stay on top of it. And with that in closing, uh, in your conclusion of the book, you highlight the need for victory in four arenas, economic, diplomatic, military, and that of ideas. Any final thoughts? Right. And when we get back to the arena of ideas, which to me was the, the toughest chapter to write, you know, the others I think are, are in a sense pragmatic and, and sort of necessary elements of strategy. But um, ideas I thought is what's most exciting. I mean, it's the fact that this country stands for something. Um, and I think many in the press uh, share that view and, and maybe even are motivated and animated by that view. But the, the American ideas of freedom, which we all, I think, find our way to in different ways and which, um, you know, to me are the reason that this country should prevail. And I think that's not just a a sort of a self-image thing, but many around the world recognize the the power of the American ideal. Um, and, you know, I think we need to learn how to articulate that again. I, I wrote in the book that um, one of the, the worst challenges we might have is I don't think we will succeed as a divided nation in this contest. Um, I think it is very important for us to learn how to find common ground, how to recognize the bigger issues that we face, and um, and to remember the importance of the fundamental American ideas that have actually a history of tremendously clear expression uh, from the founding all the way through the present. Um, and I think that you know the more that we're able to to remember who we are and what is good about this country and express that um, in our national thinking, um, the, the better off we'll be and the more capable we'll, we'll be in doing the hard practical work in economics, diplomacy, and military power. Dr. Jonathan Ward, author of The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China. Thank you for joining us on the National Press Club Update One podcast. Thank you, Link. Great to be here. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.